All right. Today's guest on my podcast is Alexander Rosenberg. He's the R. Taylor Cole Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. We've been in contact sometimes over the last years. He's been an influential philosopher in the philosophy of economics, philosophy of biology. And yeah, let's dive right into this discussion. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thanks for having me again, Walter. Yeah, so let's perhaps start with... Uh, a recent event, uh, you were in a letter exchange with Daniel Dennett, uh, it was a couple of years ago, um, where you discussed with each other what your philosophical disagreements were about being naturalists. Now, both of you think of themselves as being strong naturalists, with philosophy being continuous with the sciences, but what was the major disagreement between the two of you? So... Um... Dan is an optimistic naturalist, and I'm a uh, disenchanted or pessimistic naturalist. Uh, so the difference between us can roughly be identified with regard to a, the uh, idea of a third philosopher, a very difficult to understand philosopher named Wilfred Sellers, mm. who uh, introduced the concept of the manifest image as roughly the description of reality that most people think of as common sense, according to which the world is composed of solid colored uh, objects that have a certain texture and, and uh, uh, characteristics that reveal themselves to our senses. Um, and this manifest image uh, is one which needs uh, to the extent possible to be reconciled with the scientific image. And philosophers have been trying to do this at least since John Locke or English speaking philosophers been self-consciously trying to do this since John Locke. And Dan is part of the tradition uh, that uh, uh, has sought to find interesting and imaginative ways of doing this. Um, but of course, in doing so, the shoe always pinches somewhere. There's at least some parts of the manifest image of common sense that cannot be accommodated to physics, chemistry, biology, neuroscience. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum from Dan's optimistic naturalism, there are the pessimistic or disenchanted naturalists who say it can't be done. We can't accommodate the manifest image to what we know about the nature of reality from science. And therefore we have to treat it as illusory, uh, a whole range of illusions. Um, we can start with the illusion that things are colored, an illusion which uh, John Locke helped us explode 450 years ago. Um, but um, the disenchanted naturalist also argues that um, the idea that thought has content, intentional content, as Dan uh, uh, and I would say, uh, is an illusion. And this is uh, uh, the domain in which our disagreement first began. Mm. But the exchange of letters that you describe is about a more fundamental issue um, that is background to our disagreements about intentionality. Um, Dan thinks we can naturalize purpose, um, goal, end, uh, tell us. Um, and he uh, would probably, in fact, I Pretty sure it does endorse the view that it was Darwin who showed us how to naturalize purpose, how to be able to describe things as having purposes, goals, and ends, 
even though they're the result of the operation of blind variation and natural selection. And I think that Darwin abolished purposes. He made, uh, uh, he didn't make science purpose safe for science. He uh, um, banished purpose from the scientific worldview uh, so that there's no scope at all for purposes, certainly not in uh, the biological domain, not in the neural uh, architecture of the brain, and in my view, not even in human thought. The, the conviction, and I, I don't want to say the belief because I'm an eliminativist, but the conviction mm. uh, that we act for purposes is one of the deep illusions of the manifest image. That's where Dan and I um, disagree fundamentally, and this exchange of letters, which I think may still be online somewhere, um, reflects the way in which we two argued for that position. Yeah, I just checked. Um, it was, I think, posted originally on LetterWiki, but the website does not exist anymore. I hope it's somewhere still archived. It would be sad if those letters had disappeared oh, somebody, completely. Yes. Somebody I'm sure. Bought, I'm sure someone saved it. <laughs> someone bought the uh, the site, um, oh. and I don't know who, and is proposing to make use of its content. Hmm. Yeah, when I visited the website, it was possible to buy the domain. Anyhow, now, when it comes to this idea that we don't have thoughts, that's perhaps um, perhaps a philosophical idea that is perhaps the hardest to swallow. If we read about, oh, consciousness doesn't really exist, or free will is an illusion, colors don't really exist. I think it's easier to buy into those ideas. Maybe not so with consciousness, perhaps that seems not like something... <laughs> Perhaps that seems like something that seems so undoubtedly the, the only thing we have direct contact with. But putting that aside for the moment, this idea that perhaps we don't have thoughts, beliefs, desires, that seems to be, yeah, people can't even conceptualize that idea, perhaps even. How would you try to to give them a model for how they could understand it, perhaps? So, So the first thing we have to except is that of course we have experience and experience has qualitative character mm. um, and the qualitative character uh, is reflected in the modalities of the five senses um, and we do have thoughts insofar as there are qualitative experiences that are flowing through consciousness. Um, I do think it's impossible to, to deny first person mm. access to what it's like, so to speak, in yeah. Nagel's sense, uh, to be me or to be a human being. Um, and I, uh, my own view is that the flow of imagistic uh, mm. uh, qualitative experience through, through our um, field of consciousness is misunderstood by us as having content. And the denial that I want to persist in uh, um, advancing is that the flow of qualitative experiences through our consciousness actually constitutes or conveys the sentential propositional content of thought. Um, now, even that view, which is somewhat easier to grasp than the denial of consciousness, uh, even that view requires a lot of argument and mm. looks like it's self-refuting. Um, and I have sort of 
tried to come to grips with most of the objections to that view. And I can sort of summarize uh, the objections and how to respond to them. Uh, to begin with, we know that there are a huge number of features of the manifest image that are completely wrong, like the world is colored, we're standing still, there's a preferred direction in space, right. all things that look to us so evident that it's hard to deny them. Um, second, um, you can't infer from the immediate quality of your sensory conscious experience that it has intentional content. And I'm gonna give you a little thought experiment to try to try to dislodge your confidence uh, uh, in that. And third, of course, the argument often advanced uh, to the effect that eliminativism is self-refuting because the eliminativist says, I believe that there are no beliefs and I desire that you come to share my belief that there are no beliefs, mm. which looks like it's contradictory. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that's uh, also a, a, uh, a critique that gives serious hostages to fortune. But let me go back to the, 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 the second of these mm -hmm. two points about um, uh, how easy it is to to see that the content of thought is really an illusion. So I'm going to give you a set of noises right now uh, to listen to, and I'm going to ask you uh, uh, what um, uh, propositional content they convey. You're going to have a set of auditory experiences um, uh, hearing my uh, voice and then i'm going to say what what does that mean okay are you ready mm -hmm. dogs dogs dog dog dogs period does that convey anything to you it doesn't seem like it no, it just sounds like nonsense right it's yeah. the same word repeated over again now if i point out to you i'm going to point something out to you and that's going to lead to another set of images in your my brain uh, in your mind and immediately after you have this set of images, you're suddenly going to realize that the noise that I produced before is a perfectly well-formed English sentence. Dog is a noun and a verb in English, the canine, and to dog is to annoy, follow, pursue, uh, um, uh, uh, or uh, otherwise uh, tag around with. Now, I'm gonna produce that noise again. Dogs, dogs, dog, dog, dogs. And that makes perfect sense, mm. right? Why? Because now you have this image of a dog following another dog, which itself is following a third dog. And I can produce another example of this right now, okay? Cows, cows, cow, cow, cows, okay? Because cow is a noun and a verb. And um, uh, now you have a particular set of mental images associated with that noise and you, mistakenly infer from the character of that mental images that the first set of noises has intentional content. Mm -hmm. And our attribution of intentional content to our conscious stream of experience is just a reflection of the follow on images, silent speech, uh, um, uh, uh, visual images or whatever that we associate with noises in such a way as to generate the illusion of intentional content. Now that illusion is hugely fitness enhancing and it's a good thing about humans that we have intentional 
uh, the illusion of intentional content. Just like it's a very adaptive fact about us that we identify the location of pains in the parts of the body that are being damaged, even though pains we now know are in the brain, okay? So um, uh, the adaptive value of the illusion of intentional content is undeniable, but it's pretty easy to see how uh, uh, it could have emerged. Now let's get to the, the last part of the, this diatribe defending uh, uh, eliminativism. The eliminativist is, is accused of, uh, of producing contradictions and contradictions we know can't be true. Hmm. Uh, why is it that we know they can't be true? Well, because of the uh, nature of the truth predicate, because of the semantics of English and other natural languages, and because um, we understand the conditions under which a proposition can be true or can be false. Well, all that's mistaken. The nature of truth is as uh, vexed a philosophical question as any. And given that we have correspondence theory and mm. uh, disquotational theory and pragmatic theory of truth, and these three theories of truth are competing with one another, and we do not yet have a stable account of what the truth predicate, if there is one, uh, consists in, it's premature to beat eliminativism on on its head with the stick of the truth predicate when we don't know what truth is, okay? Mm -hmm. So let us pursue our philosophical and other investigations into the nature of truth, okay? And maybe at the end of the day, we'll find ourselves in a position either to say that the eliminativist engages in a pragmatic or a logical contradiction, or maybe we won't. But until that program is satisfactorily completed, the um, the, uh, the truth uh, warrior doesn't have the right to uh, claim that the eliminativist is contradicting himself. Mm. So how would you then respond to the probably common argument that if you give anyone a text where you are try to argue for eliminativism, that none of those words mean anything? Oh, that's correct. None of those words do mean anything. Okay, and I think I have uh, at least indicated to you the kinds of data which the mm -hmm. luminists would appeal to to suggest that the uh, the content of thought is illusory in its intentional character. Okay, now uh, might uh, the derived intentionality of print and uh, vocal uh, communication be real intentionality? Uh, I don't know. I doubt it. Mm. But uh, uh, if an alternative account can be given, particularly a, um, um, a, a behavior-rich account of human linguistic uh, competence, we can free ourselves from the illusion that all the meaning of speech and writing is a matter of... Uh, uh, um, original intentionality, interpreting um, uh, physical disturbances as symbols. Now, I think both in your book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality <laughs> and How History Gets Things Wrong, 
you offer this um, alternative model of thinking about intentionality where Correct. we might think of maps in the brain as a, a different way we might perhaps try to understand how cognition works. Well, that, uh, if we seek to understand cognition from the neuro, cognitive neuro, neuroscientific point mm. of view, um, and we make a close study of how the hippocampus records information about the environment and then how the brain employs this information in controlling behavior, um, that's another extremely powerful argument for eliminativism. Mm. Since Nobel Prizes have been given for the discoveries that show exactly how the rat locates itself in its environment without any need to attribute to the rat what Dan Dennett would call the intentional stance. Could you go into a, some more detail into those experiments for those viewers who don't know about them? Sure. So. Um, Kandel, Eric Kandel, in the, uh, through the last third of the 20th century, uh, pursued a research program in which he identified the macromolecular uh, um, changes in the neurons of the uh, sea slug, the Plagia californica, um, that constitute uh, conditional learning, classical Pavlovian conditioning. And he showed that classical Pavlovian conditioning consists in those modifications to concentrations and um, gradients of somatic genes that are driving the delivery, the building of and the operation of synapses. And then uh, O'Keefe, um, an American working in Britain, discovered the, uh, the place cells, that is to say the cells in the hippocampus of the rat's brain in which uh, uh, the macromolecular uh, mechanisms that Kandel had uncovered in the sea slug are replicated and change in ways that record the position, the location of the rat in its cage. And then about 15 years later, the husband and wife team uh, of the Mosher's, a Norwegian mm -hmm. couple, uh, discovered the grid cells, which are sets of cells in the medial uh, endorhinal corpus, which uh, fire selectively at locations, in, given the locations that the rat is in, in the cage, which are then transmitted to the place cells and uh, uh, locate the rat for purposes of, and excuse the word purposes, but uh, uh, for uh, determining um, its subsequent behavior, um, in, again, in the hippocampus. And this model of uh, information storage and deployment has been confirmed in a, a large number of other mammals up to and including primates like human beings. And in fact, the whole research program starts in the 1950s with the uh, human patient uh, HM, who was treated for serious epilepsy by a lobotomy that destroyed his hippocampus and left him free of the seizures, but also incapable of forming short-term memories and then subject to 50 years of intensive study by mm -hmm. cognitive neuroscientists who located the, uh, uh, the memory storage, information storage uh, 
um, of the human brain in the hippocampus. And this, of course, inspired the laboratory scientists to see what they could learn about the homologous organ in rats and other organisms. Mm, so do you think that in a way, perhaps then, then it would be wrong to say that applying the intentional stance to other animal helps us to understand them instead actually taking your limitivist stance would help us to make greater progress there on perhaps understanding them. No, I think in real time, mm. given our practical exigencies in controlling the behavior of cattle or zoo animals or dogs or yeah. cats or other people, the instrument of folk psychology mm. is pretty good. Okay. In fact, uh, in the How History Gets Things Wrong, I argue that folk psychology is a good instrument for predicting behavior of a small number of people in your immediate vicinity over the very near future. And because it's so good, in fact, the best tool we have and was indispensable in getting us from the bottom of the food chain to the mm. top of the food chain on the African savanna a million years ago, okay, because of its practical, pragmatic, heuristic value, it came to be ingrained in us. There's lots of good um, uh, evidence that it's hardwired or as close to hardwired as a set of dispositions can be in human uh, psychology. Uh, and of course, it's also good for herding animals. Now, mm. does that make it true? Of course, it doesn't make it true. Would the true and correct theory of the nature of information storage and deployment in animals enable a farmer uh, or the owner of a pet to control the behavior of its um, animal in real time, as well as folk psychology? No, but that doesn't prove folk psychology mm. is the right story. It, no, it doesn't, and, and so just, you know, Ptolemaic astronomy worked for a thousand years to enable us to locate ships on the surface of the mm. sea. Did that make it correct? No. Right, now you said that folk psychology especially is useful for the short term and for people that are close to us. And I think that very nicely bridges perhaps to another area of interest of yours, the philosophy of economics. For a long time, you've been a perhaps uh, ardent critic of the methodology of economics. And one argument you've made is that economics is limited because it just tries to mathematize this folk psychology into scientific theories. Could you go into that perhaps? Yes. Um... So uh, uh, economic theory starts with rational choice theory. Rational choice theory says that our behavior is determined by the joint operation of expectations and preferences, um, and that we maximize preferences subject to expectations, that expectations are uh, sets of beliefs that yeah. uh, about probabilities of various outcomes. And preferences reflect the order of uh, strength of desire among the available outcomes that uh, we have knowledge of. So if you unpack rational choice theory, what you get is folk psychological theory of mind. You get the, uh, the concept of human behavior as, as being driven by the joint operation of beliefs and desires. And of course our brains um, uh, 
encode indefinitely large numbers of desires and indefinitely large numbers of beliefs? And what is it that puts the beliefs and the desire, the relevant beliefs and the desires together to drive behavior? It's the intentional content of both of them. So when we engage in behavior, typically we cite or others cite a set of beliefs and a set of desires that bring about this behavior where the beliefs function roughly as a description of the most efficient means to attain the desires. Now, uh, the utilitarian marginalist economists of the 19th century are the ones to whom we owe the insight of attempting to mathematize this folk psychological theory of mind okay and turn it into the foundations of an empirical science and insofar as this folk, folk psychology mm. is mistaken the science will never get off the ground but of course insofar as the folk psychology is something that has us totally in its grip mm. neither we nor economists will see what the problem is about the inevitable predictive weakness and therefore the untested explanatory claims of economic theory. Hmm. So how would you then say, try to perhaps reform economics? Would we have to draw on neuroscience here? No, no. Just as you know, folk psychology is the only game in town for controlling our pets and domestic animals and other human beings and predicting their behavior, hmm. um, neuroscience is, is not going to substitute Institute for economic theory in the tasks which it sets itself. Now, what are those tasks? Well, some of them are the tasks of macroeconomics. And I think it's evident, indeed, Keynes showed us that it was perfectly feasible to construct a macroeconomic theory that is not systematically committed to belief, desire, psychology mm. as embodied rational choice theory. Um, it happens that over the last 40 years, new classical economics, macroeconomics has reverted to the marginalists' um, conception and demanded that even macroeconomics has to start mm. with the assumption that agents optimize and markets clear. Both of these reflections of the operation of the belief desire uh, uh, theory of mind uh, in the origins, the foundation of microeconomics. But um, I suspect we can do economics very well at the macro level. Mm. Uh, and I, I know that we'll never succeed in doing it by honoring the demand for micro foundations mm. as uh, new classical economists insist. And I've got a new book coming out on the <laughs> subject from oh, MIT nice. in a couple of months. And, what is it uh, called? It's, the tentative title is... Um, from the invisible hand to the to strategic oh, choice. Interesting. Uh, why economics can't get any better, why it's indispensable anyway. And it's indispensable because we need it for controlling one another's behavior. Mm. We need it because of the tools that game theory gives us for institutional design, for what economists call incentive compatible mechanism design. Okay. And that's a practical interest of ours. Uh, uh, one that uh, is served at least to some extent hmm. in the design of institutions um, by this theory, but uh, is separate from any explanatory claims that it might have. Hmm. 
Did you ever talk to Don Ross about these issues? Did he give you pushback on that? Yes, I have talked to Don Ross a great deal about these issues hmm. for 30 years. Um, and Ross and I have some agreements and some disagreements. And I believe I can, without violating confidentiality, uh, tell you that Ross was one of the uh, anonymous referees mm. in my book. <laughs> And though uh, he dissented from certain aspects of it, mainly matters of proportion and emphasis, mm. um, I, I got a lot of um, uh, 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 encouragement from reading his uh, 15,000 word referees report. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive, yeah. No, he has uh, in a way a very opposite approach where I think in his recent work, he tried to really emphasize how the intentional stance is central to economics and really bring Dennett's work more into it but perhaps explicitly. Well, he's been to, yes he's been he Don has been an optimistic naturalist mm. for a long time even though he's the author of a book called everything must go <laughs> which sounds like it's you know all the manifest image has to be disposed of mm. um I just don't think Don goes quite far enough yeah well, it's interesting then to see that you went back here to the philosophy of economics when you said, uh, I think in one of your papers, you said that really no economist paid attention to anything you were writing in the philosophy of economics and biologists that were much more interested in your work. And when I read this as a philosopher uh, and economist, I studied philosophy and economics as an undergrad, I said, oh, well. That doesn't seem very exciting to specialize in the philosophy of economics. I'm not saying it's an uninteresting field, but I think one of the most exciting things you can get out of being a philosopher of science is useful engagement with scientists. Now, did, did it change at all? Did you have better exchanges with economists recently about this book? So uh, you've got my uh, biography pretty well. Uh, peg. I started out uh, in the philosophy of economics. In fact, I wrote the first dissertation on the subject, um, and uh, it was a tactically a very wise uh, choice because there was no literature in the field, and so I didn't have to write a literature review. And everything I was able to publish immediately became sort of founding documents. But mm. I was soon followed by Dan Hausman and many other uh, very excellent philosophers. And all through the period, economists couldn't care less mm. of what we thought. The, the, the general attitude was reflected in a, in a book by uh, Deidre McCloskey entitled uh, The Rhetoric of Economics, um, in which basically she argued that economic, good economics is whatever economists say it is. Mm. Um, and they weren't interested uh, in anything we had to say. And, but as you say, Biologists have always been interested in um, uh, enriching their field by discussion with philosophers. So mm. uh, Dan and Richard Dawkins, um, Elliot Sober and Richard Lewinton, um, uh, Michael Ruse and uh, 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 Ed Wilson, um, pairs of philosophers and biologists who worked together synergistically over a very long time. Um, uh, and uh, it was for that reason that I did shift in the mm. late 1970s 
uh, an early age sort of philosophy of biology, and it was a much more exciting and interesting field. And uh, biologists attended to what we had to say about various issues. And I think it's significantly enhanced biology. So even to this day, biologists say that if you want to try to understand the levels of selection, you need to read the work of Samir Okasha, um, a, a very well-known philosopher of biology just up the road from where mm. you are in <laughs> Bristol. Um, but uh, something happened in 2007, the financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis hit all over the developed world. Um, and suddenly people began to ask economists, why didn't you see this coming? Or why couldn't you have predicted it? Or mm. how did you even allow this to happen? Uh, the Queen of England in giving a knighthood to a, uh, an economist uh, was heard to say, you know, why didn't you tell us that this could happen? Mm. And at that point, people began to take, uh, to look around for accounts of what was the, problem and the weakness of economics, Krugman wrote a wonderful long article in the New York Times magazine called How Did Economists Get It So Wrong? Um, and uh, roughly at that time, uh, 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 George Soros became interested in some of my mm. older work on the philosophy of economics, stuff that had been published 20 years before. Um, and as a result, ever since then, ever since the financial crisis, People have been paying attention to what philosophers of economics have to say about econ economics. And at that point, I began to be invited again mm. to contribute to this uh, dialogue and debate. And that's why I returned to the philosophy of economics after a 25-year absence. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I guess... Um, I myself moved into the philosophy of biology because I saw, oh, well, it is possible to make the switch. So in a way, I have to thank you here. <laughs> but yeah, I spent time now during my PhD in uh, two labs by a biologist, one that studies comparative cognition and another one, um, a life history lab at Oxford. Um, and life history theory is a very nice uh, sort of branch of biology because they sort of apply economic theory to biology, treating organisms as a kind of firm agent trying to maximize making investments. And um, it is interesting how, how well those economic models turn out to be useful in biology, right? The permanent income hypothesis operating in... <laughs> in paramecia or lab rats that that does seem quite interesting yeah at least to the extent that we can um, treat them as agents that try to to maximize and make decisions and perhaps we can explain here how at least in my work i've tried to explain consciousness in this way by arguing that this need for common currency of evaluation that could help organisms make decisions gave rise to these bentamite creatures, similar to perhaps what Dennett might call the Gregorian creatures, Skinnerian creatures, a, a different kind of creature. Um, but of course, here, intentionality doesn't... Paparian creature, I think Paparian, not, not... I would deny yeah. Gregorian creature because I'm an eliminativist. Right, right, with, right. With Paparian uh, creatures on Dan's hierarchy, and that's a very interesting hierarchy of mm. Darwinian, Skinnerian, 
uh, uh, Popperian and Gregorian. And of course, uh, the uh, biologists, in, um, particularly Greffin, have mm. argued that we ought to use ad um, maximizing adaptational right. thinking as a way of implementing Darwinian theory. And Okasha has written a whole book on this mm. subject. That's right. Yeah. Do you think then that that could give a better justification for standard economic theorizing? It's not that far off from what biologists. Well, have it to could certainly it could certainly provide an avenue for employing some aspects of uh, uh, of economic theory. Um, uh, indeed, the part of economic theory that goes back to Frank Ramsey as uh, the uh, the social planner mm. uh, model in which the organism has to decide about dividing activity between leisure and production over a lifetime that will maximize yeah. something which we can call utility. Um, uh, and that may be a, a very uh, attractive model for uh, systematizing the behavior of any creature that has been designed by mm. 3.5 billion years of relentless natural selection. Yeah. Now, I guess you've also written a bit about mm, how function talk in biology is perhaps a bit um, uh, overly optimistic in trying to naturalize purpose. What is your main argument here? So um, we anatomize organisms uh, by uh, identifying the function of their components hmm. roughly on a model of the function of artifacts that we create or the role of parts of our own anatomy in meeting our own needs. Um, and uh, the way in which we divide up the human and animal physiology generally reflects what we might call the manifest image and common sense. It's very unlikely that uh, natural selection operates uh, in such a way as to carve out as natural kinds the um, the particular kinds that are that characterize our descriptions of ourselves and other parts of biological nature. Uh, when you think that every trait of every organism, like the long neck of the giraffe, mm. is the result of a response to myriad different causal forces, and not just to the presence of delicious leaves high in the eucalyptus tree, you begin to see that the, uh, the uh, etiology of selected effects that we identify as delivering or defining or determining the function of a particular piece of anatomy <clears throat> is, if not arbitrary, at least significantly incomplete. And the long-term trajectory of any particular um, component of an animal or plant physiology uh, uh, is going to respond to so many different kinds of selective forces that to pick one of these out as delivering the function seems to me to be, um, from a realist point of view, mm. unwarranted. Could certainly be warranted from practical points of view. You know, the function of the dairy cow's udder is to deliver milk. Well, that's much more an exp 
uh, a reflection of our own schedule of interests in anatomizing um, domestic uh, animals than it is of um, mother nature's dividing nature at the joints. Mm. Now, during my PhD, I was part of Paul Griffith's grant on trying to naturalize health and disease. And at least here, one of the core arguments is that we couldn't do biology if we can't make a distinction between pathological traits and normal healthy traits, because we need right. those in trying and to define what the appropriate individuals are of a species. And it looks like we need functions hmm. in order to do that. Indeed. Yeah best argument in favor of the selected effects theory of functions is that it gives us dysfunction hmm. by contrast with other competing theories of functional uh, vocabulary. Yes. Um, so I, I do not uh, um, condemn functional language hmm. uh, uh, as um, therapeutically and technologically indispensable hmm. but we shouldn't mistake it for uh, a description of the fundamental nature of reality hmm. so perhaps in biological order. reality right now i guess we can ask the question of how deep does the limitism go for you is it is biology even a science Goes all the way then? down to chemistry <laughs> i'm sorry so, to interrupt. so biology has to be reinterpreted in a, in a sense from a realist perspective it's more of an instrumental science then so i wrote a book back in that's the 90s right <laughs> called instrumental biology or the disunity of science um and uh, i'm inclined to continue to endorse hmm. the view of biology uh, as an instrumental science by contrast with chemistry and physics which are best viewed from the point of from the stance of realism scientific mm -hmm. realism right is it because if you look for natural kinds we might find them in uh, chemical elements perhaps but there's nothing like that in biology yes that's fair i i think the only kinds uh that there are in biology are the kinds that are characterized characterize the Darwinian theory, that is um, uh, selective for uh, um, forces that produce produce uh, variation and forces that mm. filter the variation. Now, another idea, um, at least that's a big difference between you and uh, Dan Dennett, is how we can naturalize morality. Now, for Dan, that's not a problem at all, but you call yourself a nice nihilist. What do you mean by that? So... When Dan tries to naturalize morality, he's just waving his hands. Well, if you read the last four chapters mm. of Darwin's Dangerous Idea, in which he invokes Nietzsche as a Darwinian, um, you shake your head in disbelief. How could this fantastically insightful and deeply correct book about Darwin and the implications of Darwinism for so much of science, philosophy, and culture get it so wrong when it comes to ethics. Um, and of course, the problem is that uh, hardly anyone wants to face up to the reality um, that you can't infer ought from is. And Darwin's theory gives us such a compelling account of 
not only the nature of the biological domain, but why we humans make normative avowals of various kinds, okay? And why it is to our selective advantage for us to do so, okay? Uh, that uh, he and others um, mm. uh, think they can somehow either pull the wool over their own eyes or other eyes and transform this purely descriptive and factual claim into a set of uh, 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 normative um, uh, judgments that have moral force. And I just get off the train at that point. Um, I recognize that the normative theories that characterize almost all cultures have emerged as a result of a process of selection for cooperation and coordination among humans that was absolutely indispensable to, as I said before, our getting up the food chain on the African savanna from the bottom to the top in a relatively short period of time, um, uh, and which continued to be absolutely essential to human civilization and culture. Mm. Uh, and if that's not enough of a justification for them, uh, uh, I regret uh, I regret it. Um, uh, maybe I, I, I should think about the, the, the wife of the Bishop of, of um, Worcester who after the after listening to, to Huxley defend Darwin at the British Association in, in uh, uh, 1860 said to her mm. companion, descended from monkeys, let us hope not. But if it is true, let us hope it does not become widely known. Uh, and my own view is uh, nice nihilism. Well, uh, uh, if that's the right story, mm. we might be better off if people don't learn about it. Right. I think you raised the same point at the Moving Naturalism Forward conference. Uh, exactly right. Yeah. No, I think yeah, out of all the things... Uh, that naturalism perhaps makes hard to swallow as a pill. Morality might be, might perhaps be the most bitter one, right? And in fact, if you look at some of the most influential philosophers who've written at the end of the last century and mm. into this century, among whom Nagel is probably the best example and maybe Scanlon and Parfit, um, Nagel certainly has been extremely unfriendly to natural selection. Mm. And the reason that he's been unfriendly is he recognizes its incompatibility with normative value. And he believes that normative values exist in the universe. So between consciousness and morality, Nagel writes off Darwin. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always astonished when perhaps I call out that book, but there's actually many more people than I would have hoped for that that think he's really onto something in that book. But it's very consoling. Yeah. And we all know that religion for particularly intelligent people who know about the actual nature of, uh, of processes that govern physical, mm. chemical, and biological reality, um, for them, religion and, uh, and morality um, 
reflect the attempts to deal with the natural anxieties uh, of human life. Now that reminds me, you've once uh, debated William Lane Craig about atheism and God. And Richard Dawkins recently gave an interview somewhere where he said he would never do a debate with him because he considers him perhaps the most obnoxious person in that realm and in the debate sphere for religion. What was your experience there? So I agreed to debate Lane Craig uh, because it provided me an opportunity to showcase uh, a book of mine, The Atheist Guide to Reality. <laughs> and I brought a copy to the debate and held it up in front of the 5,000 people uh, and I knew it was also going to go online in a, mm. a video that has now been watched by several hundred thousand people. Um, and uh, I also accurately predicted the arguments that he would advance, mm. um, uh, the cosmological argument and the argument from morality. Um, uh, and uh, I felt I would be able to at least communicate to open-minded viewers of the video, what the defects were in these arguments. Um, in retrospect, looking back at it, I wish I had not taken him as seriously as I did mm. and, and reflected as much uh, anger and annoyance as I did in the <laughs> debate. I should have, it would have been much more effective to laugh him off. Mm. Yeah, do you think there's any use for debates of this kind? I don't think there's cognitive or intellectual mm. use for debates of this kind, but there might be uh, pragmatic and polemical uh, or entertainment value yeah. out of such debates. Certainly that, certainly that. So perhaps for the next five years after your book is done, do you have any particular goals in mind? Another book to write, perhaps? Uh, one book at a time. Um, I, I've, as you I've written uh, five historical novels. Hmm. Uh, a couple of them have been quite successful. I've got the fifth one in in the can, as they say, and I'm looking for a publisher uh, for it. Uh, and I have an idea for a sixth. And hmm. I write these novels, you know, as in intervals between writing philosophy. Um, and uh, probably something... Uh, in the nature of philosophical issues will attract my attention mm -hmm. in the next couple of years. And I'll do that too. I've stopped writing articles in the academic uh, journals because I find that um, I'm more interested in intervening in debates uh, in the public sphere mm -hmm. than in the very narrow confines of contemporary analytic philosophy. Yeah, it can be discouraging to think about how few people are ever going to read your articles in academia. That's right, exactly. Right. right. And also, um, you know, the, the agenda of the disciplines um, of philosophy of science, of metaphysics, of philosophy of psychology, mm. um, are moving forward uh, in ways that... Um, you need to constantly pay attention to if you want to contribute to. Mm. Uh, and if you've got a finite amount of time and an agenda of other interests, something has to go. Yeah, now for your novels, did, where did that interest come from? Were you interested in writing literature when you were younger? No, no, I came to oh. write novels very late. 
uh, mainly because I wanted to tell some stories. Mm. Uh, uh, and I've always been interested in history. So my strategy was to take some actual real events, um, real uh, uh, dots in history and to try to connect them by um, fictions. Um, and I've managed to do that in all of the novels that I've written. Um, and it's fun. It's mm. really a quite different set of demands and requiring different skills from writing academic philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, they're narratives that are supposed to entertain. And I've got this other book saying that narratives <laughs> convey no knowledge whatsoever. Right. And I don't think of my uh, my novels as conveying knowledge, except insofar as they tell us what actually happened in the past. Mm. So then do you put more emphasis perhaps on trying to make them as entertaining as possible? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Every chapter has got to be its own freestanding short story in mm. order to get you to, and it's got to end in such a way as to force you to read the next chapter. Interesting. Yeah. Perhaps that's different from someone who writes a book and tries to put as much meaning as possible into each chapter, hidden meanings somewhere. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not interested in, in a deep literary uh, achievement. Mm. I'm interested in telling good stories. <laughs> so, right, you let's... know, just like my books are all structured as mm. each of them as one long argument. Similarly, the, my novels are structured as a, a narrative that's got a beginning, uh, a, 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 a plot that thickens and a mm. denouement. Yeah. No, that's the kind of story one wants to read. Now, perhaps let's move to the last question for perhaps would-be philosophers or even scientists. I think you once said that you might have made a mistake by moving into philosophy. Um, what do you think philosophers should try to do once they get uh, perhaps their PhD or an area perhaps they should specialize in? Where's really the meat in philosophy where they can make useful contributions to the field? So... Um... You alluded to my saying that I became, uh, I made a mistake and that's what led me into philosophy. I made a conceptual mistake about the nature of explanation in physics. Mm -hmm. I was a physics major uh, and it suddenly struck me that I needed explanations of physical processes that showed that they were intelligible and necessary. In other words, I made the same mistake that Kant made when he wrote the critique of pure reason. And it took me reading Hume to be disabused of the mistake. Mm -hmm. And by that time, it was too late to go back into physics. Besides, I was probably better at philosophy than physics. <laughs> um, so I stayed with it. Um, but uh, uh, the answer to your question, uh, further question is I don't have anything useful to say about how philosophers should um, carve out their careers. Mm. Um, philosophy is a, a bug, a disease, an itch that you have to scratch. Um, mm. It was for me. And um, uh, if you become a philosopher, it's got to be because A, you've got that itch so deep that you can't do anything else. And B, um, you've got the intelligence and the discipline to scratch that itch in ways that other philosophers will accept as at least worth taking seriously in an mm -hmm. argument. Um, and everybody who feels that way needs to at least give themselves a chance to try out philosophy and see if it's for them because it's a very difficult um, 
occupation, career, um, and one that uh, is driven entirely internally and does not actually respond to a large suite of external rewards. Um, and, you know, I don't have any advice uh, for anybody except you better be really sure you want to do philosophy. I think there's a nice way of rounding out this conversation. So thanks, Alex, so much for coming on to this podcast. Thank 